This is SLAS Technology Podcast. I'm David Pector. It's our pleasure to have Dr. Joseph DeReddy of Partillion Bioscience join us on SLAS Technology Podcast. He graduated in 2020 with a doctorate from the UCLA Bioengineering Department, where he worked in Dino DiCarlo's lab. He joins us today to talk about a featured article, Sorting Single-Cell Microcarriers Using Commercial Flow Cytometers. Welcome to SLAS Technology Podcast. Thank you, David. Thanks for the, for the warm introduction. It's, uh, it's great to be here and talk more about my work. As a starting point, can you take us through the basics? What is a nanovial, which is what you call these single cell microcarriers? How are they fabricated and how are you using them with flow cytometry? Yeah, of course. Um, so nanovials are hydrogel particles that have cavities inside of them. You can think of them as little buckets for, for cells and they hold uh, a volume of fluid that is less than a nanoliter. So that's why they call them uh, that's why we call them nanovials. Uh, and you know the key thing about this technology and you know where we started the development and where we have brought it to today is we we designed it in a way that we could make it compatible with flow cytometers. Um, and the idea being that we could create compartments, reaction chambers for single cells in a format that is you know usable on the tools and instruments that people already have access to. So this could be you know really simple things like, pipettes and, uh, you know, microcentrifuge tubes uh, for doing the upfront steps of their assays, um, and then be able to read and analyze at high throughput using the more complex tools that people already have. So in this case, the example is uh, flow cytometers. So there are so many interesting aspects of this technology. Let me ask about a few that struck me as I read your paper. So what's the shape of the nanovials? I see that they're not balls, right? And how is that shape controlled as they are formed? Yeah, no, that's a that's a great question. I have a for the for our audio listeners, uh, they won't be able to see this, but I have a little three D printed one that I like to show people uh, when I'm talking in person. And they're they're if you think about it visually, it's 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 like a bucket. So there's there's actually a hole or a gap in the side of these mostly spherically shaped particles that um, allow cells to be able to. Uh, be loaded in without having to, um, with with just just seeding it into the um, into the the container. So there's a that, that opening is really critical actually for for these applications. Um, how we make these? So we had some uh, earlier work that we we published. I think it actually just came out recently uh, in a uh, in another journal about this process. But we're actually leveraging upfront uh, some of the microfluidic technologies that we had developed back at UCLA for creating and manufacturing these particles. And so the idea is that we can do the more complicated micro scale uh, manufacturing up front, and then the end users can exploit that uh, capability uh, at the benchtop without having to directly touch those types of instruments. So the users, they interact with this as a reagent. Exactly. Right, right. This is a reagent, but actually, so how do you form the pocket dimpled uh, balls, right? Right. So they're all, for the most part, they're all that that kind of noticeable crescent shape. Sometimes they look differently depending on the orientation, but they're, uh, okay. they, they're all quite uniformly that shape. Oh, um, and how we, how we actually make it consistently with that shape, we have a, um, a process that we developed that we are able to have these two different materials 
that are immiscible inside of this, this ball that you described. Uh, and based off the interfacial tensions, they create that, that unique shape. Um, and one of those materials is uh, chemically modified so that it can cross-link and create that solid structure. And the other component that creates that void that is washed away in the downstream process. Oh, oh, yeah. I see. oh, okay. So that there's a cleaning out and then, then, then you have a complete vial quote unquote, nanovial, once you've gone through that and they're stable, right? I mean, that's the other thing that's surprising about this. They, you can kick them around, you're working with them, you're adding things and taking things away. Um, yeah, and more. we're, you know, we're injecting it in high speed through flow cytometers too. Yeah. We, uh, you know, a lot of this, this base technology that we built it off of, um, we, we borrowed from expertise that we had in the um, biomaterial space. So actually really early on in my, my PhD, I was working on a project where we were making these hydrogel ball materials um, that could be used as tissue scaffold for, for wound healing applications. Um, and so we borrowed a lot of the knowledge that we picked up from there on how to, you know, manufacture um, these types of biomaterials that are they're compatible with cells and also stable, and then adopted it for these single cell applications. There was a line from the paper that caught my eye. Samples were incubated for 30 minutes to allow nanovials to settle uniformly on the bottom of each well with their cavities oriented upwards to promote cell capture. Tell us a little bit about how that works. Yeah, so, you know, one interesting we, thing we noticed when we were you know, working with these, uh, these nanovials early on was that, uh, you know, because of the shape, we're able to load the cells in, but it also, you know, uh, when we put them in well plates to view them, we noticed that they tended to keep orienting in the same direction. And if you think about the, the shape that it is, the, you know, the center of mass is, uh, you know, separated from its center of, uh, or it's, it's centroid such that they tend to want to orient uh, upright. Um, think of it as like a self-correcting uh, orientation. Um, so in, in some of our early processes, we took advantage of this feature to make it easier to, you know, you can see the particles into a well, they settle down to the bottom. Uh, they would tend to orient with the cavities exposed upward. Uh, you can think of it as like an array of open uh, tiny wells, and then we can seed the cells directly in after that. That's amazing that it's and so when you see that in the microscope, you just see that they're all kind of lined up there like little cups waiting for the cells and then the cells just, you know, settle down and find each not is everyone what's your they all populate or is your have a good percentage of if you do that you have a very good loading rate. Yeah, so it depends on the, the application. So for and we've made uh, we've made some progress even in the meantime since the the papers come out in terms of uh, approaches. But you know, with that loading into the to the wells that approach I described, um, we're usually expecting around twenty five to thirty percent of the cells that are loaded in to find a home inside of the cavities. Um, with some of our more recent approaches, we've uh, incorporated methods actually that you can just mix them together. You don't actually even have to let them settle. You can just have them in a tube, mix it together um, and they'll load in and to, to actually get the cells, depending on the cell type. Um, so if we're working with uh, lymphocytes, for example, we can use, uh, we use antibodies that are specific against surface markers to, to bind similar to like how, uh, you know, magnetic separation techniques work. Mm. Um, so that's how we're able to also specifically get them loaded into the, to the cavities. So the cavity has 
antibodies for that that are for the cell type that you're using. You're saying it can be now. Is the, the antibodies on the outside or just in the pocket? Yeah. So we have in our earliest work, we uh, instill some of the the nanobots that we make today. Um, we usually create. We usually use a really versatile functional group. So we'll use biotin, for example. Um, and so that's great because you can just add strepavidin, and then you can add any biotinylated biomolecule that you want to, to, to coat the, the particle with. So antibodies, um, this could be antibodies for surface markers on the cells. It could also be antibodies against uh, secreted molecules from the cells. So to use for sandwich assays, um, you could also even coat antigens and other biotinylated proteins. Uh, in our earlier work, the, uh, the whole entire surface of the, um, of the nanovial was coated. Um, but even, even then, because the cells are localized into that group, they're actually like sheltered in that cavity. And so we'd still find that they preferentially bind in that region. Mm -hmm. uh, we do have some more recent work where we've, we've created new processes so that we can selectively coat the, the inner surface. Um, so they have much more preferential binding and then also accumulated of biomolecule signals in that, in that region. Where are the first places where people will be using this kind of thing? Yeah, no, that's a great question. You know, really early on in this project, we, you know, set out with the really simple, uh, well, not so simple goal of how do we create a, you know, a reagent platform that unlocks single cell biology. And our, you know, our, our answer to that was the nanovial. And it was, you know, let's just make wells that are on the scale of individual cells and make them in a suspendable format that's compatible with instruments people use. Um, you know, as we started learning more from different collaborators that we we're working with and also testing different use cases, you know, one area that we found it was, uh, you know, quite unlocking was uh, for cell secretion assays. Um, so, for example, for antibody discovery, being able to uh, load and look at antibodies secreted from plasma cells against and looking for plasma cells with uh, antibodies secreted against specific antigens. Um, and when you're able to detect those, you can sort it using uh, using facts um, and isolate those uh, rare subpopulations of interest. Um, we also have some more recent work. Uh, we just actually had a preprint that was published on uh, using it for profiling uh, cytokine secretion. Um, so looking at T cells and looking at uh, secretion of cytokines uh, and, and profiling, um, you know, specifically looking at which cytokines are being released from the cells um, as other approaches, say using intracellular cytokine staining, you actually have to fix and permeabilize the cell, which one kills them, but it also, it doesn't necessarily indicate that those proteins that are in the cell would have actually been released. Um, so we're seeing a, a lot of interest in, in that use case as well. And we're working with uh, uh, folks that are using it for those applications. You and Professor DiCarlo have started a new company to commercialize nanobios, Partillion Bioscience. Tell us about what it's like uh, starting up a new company and how are things going? Yeah, no, it's, uh, it's been a fun, wild ride. Uh, things are going, uh, things are going great. We, you know, we started in April of 2020. So that was, you know, literally a month after the, uh, <laughs> the pandemic started. So it was, a, it was a good time uh, to, it was actually, it was a good time to start a company because, you know, you're, everyone's kind of at home twirling their thumbs for a bit and it gives you time to um, do a lot more of the, you know, reach out, uh, looking at, you know, different opportunities, doing market research, also submitting uh, for 
Uh, there's like government grants that support small businesses. So it was a, uh, it was right at the tail end actually that we we had received the innovation award that year at, at SLIS. So we we started getting uh, a lot of attention uh, externally as well. So it was just a lot of good signs, and it was it was a great timing. Um, you know, as as everyone during that time, it was definitely uh, a uh, a interesting period where it was un unclear, you know, when, you know, when we were going to be out of quarantine, when we could even like start working in a lab. Um, you know, luckily, we didn't have to wait too long and we we're actually able to get started on projects uh, and working with, uh, you know, a whole bunch of collaborators. And, you know, I think one of the really interesting things about that time is it, it really, for us, highlighted, you know, why the technology was unique and why it could, you know, unlock new things for, for researchers. The fact that, we could send materials to people, you know, across the country or even in different countries without, you know, without us having to take it there, without us having to install equipment, they could just run it on the instruments they already had. Uh, and that was just kind of like, uh, yes, that makes total sense. That's, you know, totally enabling for, especially in a, in a time where everyone's kind of locked down and restrained from, from movement. Um, and, you know, so that was kind of earlier in that process. Uh, we, uh, raised a bit of funds, built out our, our, our team. We're based in the incubator at UCLA. We actually, uh, in that time, we also launched our, our first product and we, we, we showcased it at uh, SLS 2020 this year and we won a new product award. So that was you know, really exciting to get um, you know, all that positive feedback from the community and just really being able to get our technology into more people's hands. It sounds very exciting. Lastly, you had come out of the UCLA bioengineering department, and you're not the first scientist to come on the podcast coming from the DiCarlo lab. It seems like a very fertile ground for new ideas. Uh, what has that been like for you? I, yeah, totally agree. I think it was, uh, you know, part of what encouraged me and motivated me to take this leap into the you know, entrepreneurial world was, you know, seeing all the scientists before me that had been in our, you know, in our department and Dino's lab uh, that had been able to translate technology into, you know, things that are being used in the real world. I, I think, uh, you know, part of it is really the, uh, you know, the problems that are being set forward in the beginning of, of the projects that um, I, I think help you know, leads these projects to actually being commercialized. It's it's really looking for where are there are problems that there are unmet needs in in the real world, not just a hypothetical academic bubble, but you know, where are things that people can actually use and see. And part of that, you know, it takes it takes going out of your comfort zone and you know, seeing what people are doing on the industry side. You know, SLS is a great example of a a conference where you can see that because it's a you know, it's a industry heavy conference, but there is a good amount of academics there as well. So there's a lot of commingling. So it's a, you know, it's a great opportunity to, to really, uh, to check and also showcase <laughs> what, uh, well, one check to see, you know, what is the technology that people want to use uh, and also showcase what uh, you're doing in your lab and get feedback. Cause sometimes they aren't actually connected. You get a lot of academic work. Sometimes that's uh maybe not actually that useful, which in some areas, you know, maybe it will be useful, you know, much further down the line, but for technology fields where I think it should be a shorter term goal to have something that's, um, you know, impactful and useful in the, uh, in the real world, I think that's a, it's a critical item. And, you know, that's something that we put on the forefront of a lot of our research. And I think that 
uh, that along with just having, uh, you know, just really uh, open mind towards uh, just exploring new ideas. I think that's really what helps foster that type of entrepreneurial uh, community at, at UCLA and specifically in, in Dino's lab.